you're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm here with my co-host, Paul, and we are talking about C.S. Lewis, and we're finishing up our little series on The Abolition of Man, which is a collection of some of C.S. Lewis's famous lectures, and he is laying the smack down on skepticism, on the liberalism of his time, on some of the intellectuals that are talking nonsense, talking smack about traditional values, and we are here to join C.S. Lewis in his fight. Are you ready, Paul? We're gonna, are we going to smack down some stuff? We're going to smack down. We're going to smack down stuff with C.S. Lewis. So this is basically an Akon song is what you're saying. Wow. <laughs> uh, Christians don't listen to Akon, so I don't know you're what right, you're, you're talking right. about. You're right. You're wow, right. Paul. Okay. Well, we just got a glimpse into Paul's early 2000s playlist. And <laughs> I don't know if I'm surprised or if it actually makes a lot of sense. I really don't know. You know what? People don't know this. So everyone who's listening... What you don't realize about Paul is, even though he sounds like this sophisticated philosopher type guy, he actually is a huge top 40 pop hits, like, <laughs> fan. Like, you know, the top, I don't even listen to the radio, but somehow you know all of these different people. Like, it's just like Olivia Rodriguez or whatever, uh, right? Rod- Rodrigo. Rodrigo, Olivia Rodriguez, yes. exactly. Dua Lipa. Yeah. <laughs> Dua all these artists. Great. Yeah, I, okay, yeah. well, I wouldn't know. I don't what, listen what? to... What do you listen to in the car? Like, it's just the default radio. I listen to podcasts because we have a podcast. And do you that's actually? How I do. That is I so do. lame. That is so Well, lame. okay. All right, Mr. Akon. But uh, <laughs> wait, wait, hold on. Do you listen to the top 40 radio? You just put on I, the radio? I like to listen to music when I have short drives. I listen to podcasts only on long drives. That's what is system. the most? Well, okay, what, what's the most embarrassing song that you've been rocking out to recently? Oh, man. I love that sigh of shame. <laughs> that it's was very shameful. genuine. Yeah. Um, I, I like Ed Sheeran's new song. Ed Sheeran. I mean, that's, I really, that's, that's pretty respectable because Ed Sheeran's okay. quality. I'm, yeah. I'm talking like even more shameful. Oh, uh, Like okay. dig deep. Dig deep here. I will confess that Justin Bieber's Ghost song is not bad. I didn't that's, even know he had a song called Ghosts. Well, now you know. We're going to rock out to it later. Stay tuned. Well, okay. Well, we've all learned a little bit more about you. I don't know if it's good stuff that we've learned about you. but We just lost our last viewer. I know. I know. They just signed off. And, uh, well, I don't know how that transitions into the abolition of man, but uh, we'll somehow make this work. But uh, we're finishing up abolition of man and uh, talking about this last chapter uh, where C.S. Lewis talks a little bit about technology and how that influences the way we view our world, the way we view ourselves and human nature and all that stuff. And then we finally get to figure out what he's talking about when he says the abolition of man. What does it mean? Are we trying to abolish men? Is this some kind of radical feminist agenda? The answer is yes. That is exactly what this podcast is about uh, because most of our listeners are like that. So, Paul, tell us what this chapter is actually about. I've, you could probably do a better job than I can, because I actually was a little bit confused. I think that the broad parameters, he's trying to say that humans think that they have conquered nature, or the quest is to conquer nature through technology. And in the process of doing so, we we abolish men. We, we condition the next generation. We can exercise our power over nature to 
sort of the sort of like a eugenic critique and a anti-contraception technique. And there's a worry that we can make human beings too much like what we want them to be. And so we risk losing out on humanity and we end up with something like androids or yeah, something like that. So that that's, that's the broad shape of the critique. I'm not exactly sure what the argument is, but it's a general, like we shouldn't play God with nature. Let's not try to go too far. Otherwise we risk losing our humanity, something like that. It's a little more sophisticated of a take than I think most people when they talk about technology give. That's fair. I think, yeah. I think today people talk about, don't be on your cell phone, don't be on social media all the time. And there's sort of a vague kind of, uh, you know, it's a waste of time. You could be doing something more productive. You know, you need to be more present, all these things. All of those are true. But I think Lewis takes it more on a philosophical level, asking what has technology done to the way we view the world in ourselves? Technology has given us an unprecedented ability to control nature, to control our situation. And I think what he's getting at is that a human being at its essence, a human being is a creature that's dependent, that we receive reality and we mold ourselves to fit it. And I think technology can play a part in that if it's a tool, not a master. And I think what he's saying is if you think that you can use technology to be the master of your own fate or to cut off any sense of dependence that man has on a transcendent power, if you think that man can be autonomous, self-ruling by the use of technology, you're actually going to lose something essential to what a human is, which is being finite and being dependent. And it's not a matter of whether you're going to have somebody in power over you. It's who is going to be in power over you. And he actually makes this interesting argument about even if you could use, you know, selective breeding to create the perfect human being that doesn't get sick or whatever, what you're doing is you're exercising your power on future generations. So they don't have the choice or they don't have the ability to decide what they want to be. And so you can never really get out of this sort of chain where future generations are going to be patients, as he says, or subjects of a power wielded by those already alive. And uh, I think that that's an interesting way to look at it. We don't often think about the long-term effects of technology, modernism, all these, I don't know if modernism is the right word, but technology, mm -hmm. everything is about accessibility. Everything's about consuming. Everything's about immediate gratification. And uh, if that's what you mean by power, the ability to get what you want quickly and conveniently, we might be playing with fire. That might not actually be what we really need or what's actually beneficial for us. So he's, he's not saying that all nature is good, all technology is bad, or anything that's natural is by definition better. He's not saying like <clears throat> anti, he's not being anti-medicine. He's not being anti like, oh, we should just be all homeopaths and just take essential oils all the time because nature, technology, like that's, that's not the critique, right? And it's not, it's not that unsophisticated critique you mentioned earlier of just technology has a risk of ruining our psychology, distancing us from our relationships. He's trying to say that it's something more fundamentally deep, that it, our control over nature, if, if we can actually achieve control over nature, we lose out on being human because being human is by definition, essentially radically dependent. Um, and so one, one area that this is most clearly seen, I think is in the, in the case of childbirth and reproductive technology, right? 
Um, so one, one instance that comes up in bioethics a lot is this idea of designer babies. Like you can choose your kids' genes, which genes you want to turn on. You can give them blonde hair. You can give them blue eyes. Like, is there anything in principle wrong with that? And so I mean, imagine a case where that's, this that's, is an interesting conversation. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Keep yeah. going. I mean, so imagine a case where, <clears throat> imagine a case where, you know, you could, your child has a tendency for, um, bone cancer. And you could, you could measure that in utero. You can turn off the gene. You can, right? That would be a good thing to do, right? What's the difference between that and uh, make, like choosing your child's hair color or their height or their musical abilities, right? Um, I think Lewis wants to say that there's a critique even of that latter sort of selection. But it's it, like the reason why is not automatically clear. But I think he does want to push back on even that kind of us fashioning our children in our own image us fashioning the next generations in our own image. Um, yeah, so that's that, that's what I was thinking of when, well, I, so, when I read that. So you think he's critiquing... So it seems like there's two cases. One is preventing a disease that could threaten the child's life. Right. The other is uh, engineering preferences into a child. Right. So wouldn't that be a difference? One of them, you seem, it would seem like if you could help somebody not experience a disease, you should be able to do that. Right. But you know, changing someone's hair color, it doesn't seem to have the same moral weight. Well, but let, let's say that uh, you live in a society where blonde people tend to do better. Or for example, uh, IQ is correlated with success in life. What if you could make your child's IQ higher or change their height and give them better prospects in athletics or in the dating scene or something like that? Um, I think Lewis wants to push back even on that. I think he's going to say that if we were selecting our children's heights and hair colors and musical abilities and IQs, we are fashioning children in our own image. And eventually we're going to end up with a humanity that is not human. We're going to abolish mankind if we, if we go down that route. It kind of sounds like people getting endless plastic surgery. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. sort of like you could just, well, what's wrong with just, you know, a little lift here or what's wrong with, you know, tightening the skin here or what's wrong with bota or any of these things and it's that it's it it's not that those every single procedure is wrong mm -hmm. but that it's sets you up on a trajectory and a mindset to where it's almost like the more you change yourself the more you buy into sort of a vanity hmm, the more right. grotesque you become so a society that continually wants to engineer these kids that are like all high IQ, all tall, gorgeous, muscular, or whatever, all these things, you don't realize it's a poison pill. It's like carbon dioxide. It's not something that you can smell or taste, but it's killing you. You mm -hmm. are imbibing a kind of superficiality exactly. and a consumerism that's going to destroy your society and it's gonna dehumanize you because now people are no longer human beings with dignity. They're merely objects. You know, you're almost like objectifying yourself on this endless quest of improvement. Right. And it is kind of an interesting look. I mean, I remember there was, you ever watched this movie called, I think it was called Gattaca? Oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Something like that with yeah. Ethan Hawke. Yeah. And it was basically like, this is like future where these kids are genetically engineered right. to That's be exactly like super that. geniuses. And yep. Ethan Hawke is a guy who's not, and he has to, by sheer determination, kind of me measure up. But even that, he's still buying into it where it's like, yeah, you, you can either be genetically superior or you can make yourself superior. And it's never questioned the whole infrastructure of 
why are we trying to create these kind of superhumans? And it's kind of an eschatology too. I mean, Christianity has an end time where it says God is going to bring in the kingdom. That God mm-hmm. is going to be able to renew creation and fix the problem of death and sin and, and evil and corruption. Right. This is an alternate eschatology. This is an alternate way of looking at the destiny of man, where we are the ones who forge our own destiny. By our power, we get rid of death and disease and, and, and sin by, by making ourselves these perfect superhumans. And I think Lewis is saying we have to be very careful in going down that path. Or even be very careful thinking that we always know what is best for ourselves. Yeah, and and proponents of this view even call themselves transhumanists. They are right. trying to go beyond humanity. So in the process of making ourselves larger, stronger, taller, more more higher IQ, uh, they have in mind a very specific conception of what it is to be uh, a good human. But I think in doing so, they they eradicate the concept of humanity because they've got such a tiny sliver in their minds of what they think it, humanity looks like. And so they rule out all the other plausible options, all the entire range of, of good forms of humanity. And in doing so, they, they do, um, I think I think it is a, a an impoverished conception of humanity if you think that what it is to be a good human is to fall in this really narrow window or this really narrow Imagine if you said, we want to engineer all kids to be six foot three, blue eyes, you know, no genetic diseases or whatever. You're on the backhand, you're saying that these other kinds of people are deformities, that to not be a certain height is a deformity, to not have certain eye color is a deformity that needs to be fixed. I think about, we've had conversations about things like autism. Is autism a thing to be quote unquote fixed? Or is it simply just a different kind of neurology that people have? And the problem is on those who are not autistic, not being able to accept that. Uh, It's an interesting question to bring up. And our vision of humanity becomes dangerously narrow, like you're saying. So ideas have consequences. I think that that's a huge thing that we keep coming back to. They may not be immediately apparent what the consequences are. Just like, you know, wanting to get a facelift or whatever, Nobody's thinking about the philosophical consequences of that. They just want to look a little better. They don't realize that these massive changes happen in little increments. And a society that promotes these things might be signing its own death warrant. That's the abolition of man. By by attempting to create this human based upon what we think a pinnacle human should be, we end up destroying humanity. We end up destroying what God created us to be. I think uh, you can even consider... If you created the perfect human prototype, maybe he'd be rich, powerful, athletic, healthy, all these types of things, all these things that Jesus was not. And I think you see in the incarnation a prototype of a human being that is at odds with much of what the world values. You have a humble man, a man of sorrows, a man of grief, a man of great compassion, a man of great strength, of prophetic power. But not the guy who gains the favor of the world. In fact, it's, it's it's the opposite. So I think the incarnation is something to struggle with because it it gives us a vision of what God views as flourishing humanity. It gives us a vision of what God views as what's actually important. Even to use the the term perfect human or perfect human form, 
um, is probably not even the best way to think about it because I think there's a plausible case to be made that there is no such thing as the perfect human form. There is, there's deficiency and then there's good. There's lots of good ways to be human. Right. Um, and right. that's, that's both true in terms of ethnic right, diversity, right. but also height and intellectual capacity and personalities and styles of communication. And right. So, and how do we identify which falls into which, how do we identify which is a deficiency and which is good? Like that, that's not always easy, right? You, you get car, hard questions like autism, but um, we thought this for a long time with left-handedness, right? Like we thought left-handedness was a disease. And so parents would like try to force their kids to write with the right hand or, um, and then we slowly began to realize that that's not, it's not a deficiency. The world might just be on majority right-handed, but it's not right. So, so all of this comes together and it's, it's sort of an interdisciplinary, deeply reflective process. How do we sort these things? But I think the error that Lewis is trying to warn us of and helping us to be cautious about is just to have an expansive conception of humanity, to not have an overly narrow window of humanity so that we end up, so that we don't end up um, with a sort of eschatology that is of our own making, that doesn't take into account the intrinsic goodness of diversity, where, you know, in Revelation, it talks about how the new creation is populated, every tribe, tongue, and nation, um, that humanity is supposed to exist in a plurality, in a variety. Um, and so when we say we want kids that are all going to be of this kind of height, of this kind of IQ, what we've done is eventually over generations destroyed humanity because we've taken one singular conception of what it is to be human and made that the only conception. And in doing so, completely made an impoverished concept. You can see how much dignity the uh, Christianity gives to people who would not receive dignity from society. So I think about in First Timothy, all the instructions about caring for widows, uh, the people who are left all alone, or caring for orphans in James, or thinking about the poor, or thinking about those who have not much standing. And there's a vision of the kingdom of God where it's like, we're not trying to be these sort of, you know, superficial visions of humanity. I think about, uh, you talk about like, um, cultures like, you know, Hillsong Church, which is going through all kinds of problems now. And something that's always been irritating about the Hillsong culture is that it was built around this sort of sex appeal of like, all the worship leaders are stylish, they're young, they're attractive, they're charismatic, the pastors are cool, they're hip, they're good looking people, all this stuff. And it's a subtle message. They could preach over and over again about how Jesus loves, you know, the disfigured and the estranged and the ostracized, all that. They can say that all day long, but their aesthetic brings a different message. And I think that's why you can see a culture of utter kind of craziness happening in that movement. And I see it because you just, you just watch people, they gravitate towards an ideal that they see on stage. And this could happen in a, any kind of church too. And I think one of the problems we run into is one, that's just the way that we are. We're going to gravitate. We, we see something we want to imitate in somebody else. That's not a bad thing. That's kind of how we're wired. But we have to be very careful whether our taste buds are attuned to desire the things to, to become the kinds of people that we should be. Like, why do we find flashiness, youth, charisma, you know, why do we find the same things attractive that Hollywood finds attractive? And it's it forces us to reflect on some uncomfortable questions or why do we find attractive in pastors what we find attractive in politicians or political parties or things like that i mean you could you could have a bunch of different 
things and, and all of them present a vision of the good life. You know, if you, if you, if you come to our church, you believe our doctrine, you do our things, you can have a family like us, you can look like us, you can enjoy life like us. And I think what Lewis is looking at here is, well, let's be careful that our vision of humanity isn't actually a man-made one, but something that God has ordained. And we see that when we pay close attention to the incarnation. Well, even, even from a psychological and biological perspective, there's a, there's a mechanism, there's a reason why we try to emulate people who are in positions of power. It's called prestige bias. Um, so for example, in the year that Game of Thrones blew up, the name Daenerys shot up and became like the most, one of the most popular girl's names for, for babies. That right? doesn't so sound like we, a girl name at all. Daenerys? Yeah. I don't watch Game of Thrones. And I'm, I'm a Christian, Paul. Daenerys. Of course you oh, okay. are. I, I haven't yeah. watched it either, but it did, it, yeah. it yeah. rose in popularity. Yeah, sure, Paul. Um, <laughs> as he, as he deletes his, his history list on his website. As, as I, as I delete my, uh, my Akon playlist. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the reason why we tend to emulate, you have a fr- wait, you you have a friend named Daenerys? I do. Named yeah. after the Game of Thrones character? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. This is independently. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say actually that, yeah, that friend would have been eight years, years old. Yeah, she's nine years old. Oh man. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Um, the reason why we care, the reason why we emulate people in positions of power, is because like biologically, we assume that if you're in a position of power it's because you've got like, that's a signal of good. It's a marker of good genetics. Like something went yeah. right there. And so we try to emulate that. We try to make our kids into that. And so it really is just, um, it's not, it's not a selfless process. It's not a selfless project. Uh, deep down, there's like an insidious motivation, which is to try to make ourselves sort of live on in our children, right? It's sort of a vicarious, I want to, um, experience fame. I want to live on through my child. And so it is, it is an objectification of your child. If, if you uh, make them dress like the, the top celebrities or you put them in these athletic programs or oh, it's super the, the, weird. the baby Ivy leagues, which are a thing now, or parents pay tons of money to put their kids in these elite, like pre-K three schools. And it's just, it's insane. Um, but it totally is just narcissism because well, it's people wanting to live on through their, through their kids. And it's what Lewis talks about where in trying to control nature, you're like, oh, I can control the destiny of my child. What you've done is you have made them a puppet to you. Like they yeah. no longer have sovereignty over their own life. Mm-hmm. And you have, and, and that's part of what makes you a human, not sovereignty yeah. over your own life, but sovereignty in a, in a derivative sense of like, I think you need to have that freedom. Right. And if a child doesn't have that freedom, you're taking something of his or her humanity away. Absolutely. And that's a very dangerous thing but man it is kind of crazy and i i mean man i mean I, I would think it's like if you just had your child look a certain way be a certain height all the social graces would fall on them and yeah. they would have an easy life and it's so tempting but the reason it's tempting isn't because it's moral or ethical it's mm-hmm. tempting because we have so drunk the cultural kool-aid absolutely that it's so enticing but really the question is is it good is it good that one, I do this to my child? Yeah. Um, and two, is it good that having this being done to them, is, is that good for the kind of world that we're creating for our child? Because mm. the same impulse of narcissism that would make you try to make your kid, you know, a supermodel or whatever, yeah, is gonna trickle out in every aspect of your life. And again, I think 
here, the great virtue is sort of aesthetics or pleasure. I want to engineer my child so that they can experience the maximum amount of pleasure, ultimately. Whereas the Tao, the traditional values, not even just Christianity, but especially in Christianity, is saying, no, the most important thing is virtue. It's righteousness. Mm -hmm. It is Christ-likeness. That's what I want above all things. And again, Christianity, it just get. and I don't know if we've really reckoned with what it means that when God dwelt among us, when he, when he uh, descended, when he put on flesh, when the word was made flesh, and he emptied himself of his glory, his, his, his divine, not that he gave away his divinity, but that he came in humility. I don't think we've grappled with what God wants Christians to have as a vision for the good life as a vision for what we should actually have our kids aspire to and ourselves aspire to. Yeah. Well, think, think about what it does to the parent child relationship when you have this ability to control things like how much athletic ability your child will have, what their IQ is going to be. It really reduces the relationship to a transaction because, uh, there's a great political philosopher at Harvard, whose work I really like, Michael Sandel. He talks about how the parent-child relationship has to have a dimension of radical openness to it. Like in, in deciding to become a parent, you are opening yourself up to the, the like a radical vulnerability. Like you sort of take whatever comes. And that is necessary to be a good parent. You have to sort of be open to saying like, all right, well, whatever, whatever comes through this birth canal, like... I'm going to raise this child and, and love this child and care for this child. And that kind of openness to whatever comes through this, that is the thing that enables you to truly love unconditionally, right? The more conditions you begin to place on your child, um, and you can do this post-birth as well. You can do this in terms of uh, how strong of a hand you place on what schools you put them in, what trajectory for their life you're sort of planning for them from the moment, right? Like, like they're born. That that really does like you got to stop and ask yourself the question do i do i truly think of this as a relationship of unconditional love or am i using my child to gratify my own selfish desires am i using my child as a tool and the more we place these conditions the less those things are going to be like the less it's actually going to be unconditional and so that radical openness is necessary to the parent child relationship and ask any good parent right you have to have this sort of I don't, I don't, I don't care what my child ends up doing later in life, right? So long as it's not like self-destructive or drugs, but like, I don't, I don't care what their career is going to look like. I want what's good for them. I don't want them to live on my dream for me, or I don't want them to fit into this really narrow sliver of what humanity looks like in my own conception, because that's selfish and it's conditional. And it's going to eventually erode my ability to, to truly live out a good parent-child relationship with them. There's so many implications of this. You think about Aquinas talking about how grace perfects nature. And that's a really a classic Christian doctrine. What does it mean to perfect though? When grace, when God's grace perfects our nature that's marred by sin, it's not a perfection of our height or of our looks or of our charisma or of our giftings or of our wealth. It's a perfection of our moral character. And that shows where the value is and where Christians should put the value. And I think today, when you talk about people engineering their babies into super babies without, you know, with blue eyes and, you know, really tall and athletic and all this stuff, they have a different vision of perfection. Perfection is this external modification to give somebody the most pleasure they can get versus the Christian vision of perfection being moral 
uprightness. So you have two competing visions. And I think Christian parents or people who are Christians at all, we have to think, man, which, which path am I following? When I think about perfection, do I think about it in the Christian way of grace perfecting my nature as perfecting my moral character? Or do I view it in a, in a secular way where perfection is about modifying myself to maximize my pleasure? Yeah, Aquinas has all the answers as usual. Yeah, there we go. I mean, this is, you could go on and on. I mean, you've really opened a can of worms when you think about the implications of what it means to be a human being and all these things. Man, I just, I could even think now how even in church culture, it can be all about external appearances or what people aspire to in Christianity is still so worldly. Um, it's, It's almost just like, upper middle class living, you just go to a building once a week and sing songs, you know, and you get your little practical help for your day to maintain your life and you go on. When the incarnation, it says actually the vision of humanity God has rams up right against what we often think. And I think as transhumanism and all these weird sci-fi kind of things, you know, appear in the future, it's going to take a deep understanding of the Christian tradition, a great understanding of what the scriptures say, a great understanding of what is radical about the incarnation to really keep our minds intact. So we don't abolish man. So that we don't lose the very humanity that God gave us as a gift. Well, thank you guys for listening to this again. uh, We're going to have a link in the show notes to buy abolition of man. Highly recommend you check it out. It is dare I say prophetic for our times. And uh, if you want to listen to more content from us, send us a DM, follow us on Instagram. That'll preach podcasts. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast, share it with a friend. And we will be back next week. Bye.